We've seen Jesus himself say things like, according to your faith, let it be done to you. Directly connecting our faith to the size of the miracle we're capable of receiving. We've seen Jesus himself have his power limited. As mind-blowing as that seems, we've seen Jesus himself have his power limited by the unbelief of people in his hometown of Nazareth. We've talked about how faith really is at the center of the Christian life. It's where the rubber meets the road and we find out if we have a real trust relationship with God or if we simply have head knowledge about God that doesn't really change anything in our lives. Faith is the difference. Today I want to deal with a very difficult issue that you have encountered if you've been a believer for more than six months. In fact, you may be encountering this issue right now. I'm talking about prayers that seem to go unanswered. Prayers that seem to go unanswered. And before we dive into this, I want to be very clear that there are some obvious reasons prayers don't get answered. Just a few obvious reasons would be sin. We usually don't want to recognize this, but the Bible says in the book of James, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. The implication is there is a difference in power between the prayer of somebody who is righteous and is walking with God and someone who is not. It's not equality across all prayers. There's a difference whether you're following Christ or not. So we can't sin in one area of our life and expect God to bless it. We can't be ignoring God calling us to follow him in an area of our lives and expect him to bless every other area. It just doesn't work that way. If you're doing that, please don't be puzzled and say, I just can't figure out why God isn't listening to me. You know why God's not listening. Sin will block prayers being answered. Secondly, praying out of unity with God's will for your life. We talk a lot about Amos 3.3 in the Bible, which says, can two walk together unless they are agreed so sometimes our prayers don't get answered because jesus is leading us this way we're supposed to be followers of jesus and we're praying about going in this direction jesus says i'm not doing that right now i'm just not doing that so sometimes we're praying out of unity with god and if you're worried about that just hold on to the word of god which says delight yourself in the lord and he will give you the desires of your heart that means as you find your satisfaction and hope and life in Jesus the things you want are going to be the same things that he wants for you and then thirdly sometimes prayers aren't answered because of a lack of faith it's a real thing we saw Jesus just a few weeks ago it said he could not do any mighty work there in his hometown of Nazareth because they didn't have enough faith but that's not what this message is about this message is about why we keep praying for miracles even though sometimes we're doing everything right and our prayers still don't get answered that's what we're going to talk about today it's really easy to try and turn faith and prayer into a formula so the formula is spend lots of time in the word do what it tells you to do believe the word pray the word confess the word stand in faith and your prayer will be answered it's really easy to think it's just that simple but it's possible to do all of those things and still not get the end results of your prayer being answered. If you've been following the Lord for more than six months, you know this is true. It's possible to be in the Word, praying the Word, confessing the Word, standing in faith and obedience, and still not have your prayer answered. So what do you do? What do you do then? 
And this is where I've seen a lot of believers get hurt because they end up in a church where they're told, well, the answer is simple, you don't have enough faith. And they're thinking, I think I had that base covered. And they said, well, clearly you didn't. And you end up in an abusive situation like that and people leave the church hurt. So if praying and standing in faith doesn't guarantee a miracle, doesn't guarantee you getting what you're asking for, why do we do it? Why do we do it? If we've all had prayers go unanswered, why do we still pray? Well, it's because we've probably all had prayers answered too, haven't we? We've all had them answered as well. And so almost all of us understand that from experience, prayer has the potential to make an enormous difference. Prayer makes a big difference. Nobody in here has a perfect track record when it comes to prayer. Nobody says, every single time I pray, it gets answered. If you do have that, please see me after the service. There's a lottery. Let's get together. Let's make some things happen. I'm very interested. But in order to understand why we should continue to pray in faith, even if we've seen it seemingly not work, we need to take a look at the circumstance that we're praying about. What, what I mean by that is, is this. Probably every single one of us has something in our lives that we're praying about right now. Somewhere we need a breakthrough. Somewhere we're desiring to see God do something in a significant way. That situation, that circumstance will fall into one of four categories. And the category that it falls into will have a dramatic effect on whether or not there is the potential for a miraculous answered prayer in that situation. We're going to go through these four categories. The explanations are not easy to hear. I want to be upfront about that. But they're truthful and they're biblical. The first possible explanation is this. You can write this on your outline. The first possible explanation is simply God's doing something. God's doing something. I love the story of Job. I would never want to be Job, but I love the story of Job in the Bible, and I believe it's there for some very, very important reasons. We're going to go through it in just a minute, but one of the things that sticks out to me about Job is that he never got an explanation from God, if you read the book of Job, as to why tragedy after tragedy struck his life. He never got an explanation of why God was letting that happen. And if you're not familiar with the narrative of Job's life, let me break it down for you. So Satan comes before the throne of God doing what he always does. The Bible says he is the accuser of the brethren. He stands before God and accuses us it never works because of course we are cleansed by the blood of jesus in the sight of god but he accuses us and he accuses you if you're a believer you know this is true every time you have that accusing voice in your mind saying you must be such a disappointment to god where does that come from comes from the accuser of the brethren comes from satan so satan is standing before god accusing believers and he brings up a man named job Job is a man who is described in the Bible as blameless and upright, one who feared God and shunned evil. And Satan's pitch to God about Job is, listen, here's the deal. God, look, Job's a good guy, and you're blessing him. So it's pretty clear here that the only reason he's a good guy is so that you'll bless him. He's just in it for the blessing. If you stop blessing him, if you stop making his life so great, <laughs> Job would turn his back on you in a heartbeat. And then the story gets flat out crazy when you think about it. God says, okay, have at it. 
have at it. Just don't kill him. Do anything else you want to him. Just don't kill him. And God doesn't do this because he can't turn down a double dare. God does this because thousands of years later, we would be reading the story and life of Job this morning. God wanted to do something in that situation. This is what it says in Job 1. I'm just going to read it to you. Job 1, if you're interested in your Bibles, we're in Job 1.13. It says, Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside him. When the Sabians raided them and took them away, indeed they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, Another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away, yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. So Job is left in this state. Everything he has is destroyed. And not just at a pace where he can digest it. At a pace where... It just overwhelms him and consumes him. I I would imagine anyone in that situation would collapse, possibly pass out, because your, your brain and your emotions and your spirit simply can't process that amount of devastation that quickly. And Job has everything, every material blessing removed from him, just like that. One day, one moment, one seemingly endless conversation as report after report of devastation comes to him. And as time passes, as Job is left with nothing and his life gets worse and worse, if you know the story, you know that Job gets sick, he gets sores all over his body, and his friends come to him. And their attitude is essentially, Job, what's going on in your life? What's your sin issue? Why don't you just confess your sin issue? Clearly, something is going on here. So, what's your sin, Job? Job's wife says, why don't you just curse God and be done with it? God doesn't seem to love you anymore. He doesn't seem to care about you anymore. Job holds his tongue, keeps his peace, and then he finally, finally loses it. He finally has enough. And it takes much longer for him to get there than it would have taken you or I, if we're being honest. And he goes to God and he, he basically says, God, what the heck? Like, why? Why? And he doesn't get the Jesus we want, which is the, Job, let me first start with a hug. Just come here, man. I'm here for you. God responds to Job by essentially (laughs) telling Job, now prepare yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you will answer me. Bible scholars tell us that the the actual term there in the King James is gird up your loins, or, or we would say in our culture, God is saying, put on a cup. Hold on to something, Job because I'm going to question you now. And if you read Job 38 through 41, it's just this 
absolute torrent of God making one giant point to Job. Job, I am God and you are not. I'm God, you are not. Why is this happening to me, God? God's answer is Job. The answer to that question is on a need-to-know basis. And all you need to know is that I am God. And when God says that, the translation is always the same. The real translation is, I'm doing something. I'm doing something. It's probably not within your mental faculties to grasp and understand what I'm doing. You will understand one day, but all you need to know right now is I'm doing something. And God clearly expects that to be a sufficient, satisfactory answer for Job. Read Job 38 through 41. You'll see what I mean. And here's what's so crucial about Job. Here's why I really believe he's in the Bible. Because are his circumstances the result of sin in his life? They're not. Not at all. We found out he's a righteous man. Blameless before God. He fears the Lord. Here's an interesting point. Knowing what's going on behind the scenes, because that's the book of Job. We get to peek behind the curtain and know what's going on in what the Bible calls the heavenly places, the spiritual realm. We have the conversation between God and Satan. Job doesn't have that. Job doesn't have that. But here's an interesting question. Would fasting and praying have made any difference to Job's circumstance, knowing what we know? Would have made no difference. No difference at all. Why? Because God was doing something. He was doing something. Sometimes he wants to do something in us through a circumstance. One of the most famous examples is the Apostle Paul. You really have to picture this to grasp the gravity of the scenario that unfolded in his life. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul wrote, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. So he's saying, so that I don't get a big head because of everything that God has shown me and taught me. He says, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. The picture is like the wind buffeting a sail, just boom, boom, boom. Lest I be exalted above measure so that I don't get a big head. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So get the picture. This is Paul, the greatest apostle who ever lived, the greatest church planter who ever lived, the model pastor dealing with an affliction that won't leave him. Do you think there's anything lacking in the prayer life of Paul? Paul was praying like a madman all day, all the time. There's nothing lacking in the man's prayer life. And he says, I asked God to take this from me. God says, no, I'm doing something. But you grasp the gravity of this when you understand most Bible scholars believe that thorn may have been an eye condition that Paul had that caused pus to ooze out of his eyes while he's speaking. It's one of the possible reasons Luke is traveling with him because Luke is a physician. He's a doctor. Get this picture. Here is Paul standing up in front of people, preaching and proclaiming the power of God, praying for people to be healed, seeing them healed seeing the lame walk the blind see 
but having to pause every now and then to be ministered to by a physician for a physical condition that the Lord would not heal him of. It's just so strange to imagine somebody who has a ministry that involves healing people having God say, I will not heal you. I will not heal you. Why? Because God is doing something. Can prayer make a difference when the reason for a trial is God doing something? No, it can't. No, it can't. We'll find out there's a benefit to it. But when God is doing something, God is going to do what God wants to do. And when that's the reason, no amount of prayer or fasting is going to change that. We're going to bring this all together in the end. The second possible explanation, write this down, is that your trial, your situation, my situation is a natural consequence of a fallen earth. Natural consequences of a fallen earth. We live in a cause and effect universe. So we live in a universe where there is free will. And that free will is available to believers and to non-believers. It's available to the responsible and to the irresponsible. And sometimes people are taken from us before we even have a chance to pray. A tragic accident. A health attack that unfolds without anybody even knowing about it, without warning. And in those moments, we often comfort ourselves with the phrase, you know, everything happens for a reason. It's one of the platitudes we go to so quickly, even as believers. Everything happens for a reason. And I really believe that we do that because we're trying to convince ourselves that everything down here on the earth is somehow still working properly. That's the hope we're expressing when we say everything happens for a reason. That comes from our desire to believe that everything down here on the earth really is working. And you know, there are entire streams of philosophical thought. They're the schools of philosophy that dominate our governments in the Western world. The belief in Western government is essentially man is good, people are good, and and we're just trying to find the right system. And if we can just tweak the system till we get it right, then everything will work. And I think deep down, we know that that's simply not true. The truth is that everything here on the earth is not working properly. The earth and the men and women who inhabit it are broken. We're broken. And what those moments in life are designed to make us feel is a longing for heaven because heaven is the place where everything is as it should be. There will be pain that you and I will experience in this life that will simply be the result of one tragic truth. And the truth is this, write this down. This is not heaven. This is not heaven. I have found over the course of my life and and friendships with other believers that sometimes the simple honest truth that this is not heaven is more comforting than the fallacy that, well, everything happens for a reason. Because deep down we know that can't be true. But sometimes there's comfort in knowing, hey, this isn't heaven. But what's implied by that statement? 
somewhere else is. There is a heaven where everything is as it should be. That's why heaven has been a source of unwavering hope for believers since the beginning of the church. That's why God doesn't intervene in every tragedy that happens. Because this is not heaven. This is not heaven. There are natural consequences for our decision to sin as a human race. We feel those consequences every day. The Bible actually tells us that sickness and death are only here on the earth because we sinned as people. That's the only reason that those things exist. Every bit of brokenness that we experience in this life can be traced back to humanity's decision to choose ourselves over God. Every bit of brokenness we experience goes back to the issue of sin. That's why the world is broken. And when we see the brokenness in the world all around us, instead of becoming bitter at God, it should cause us to weep because we are coming face to face with the consequences of our sin as people. It should wreck us. It should absolutely break us. We took Eden, we took a perfect world given to us by the Lord, and we turned it into the world that we have right now. And when you understand that, you realize we have no right to get angry at God when we experience the natural consequences of our sin as the collective human race. We have no right to call God unjust any more than your child has a right to blame you for burning their hand on the stove when they ignored your instruction not to touch it. We have no right to blame God for any of that. Instead, what we should do is be filled with gratitude that God didn't leave us in that condition. Instead of saying, well, I guess you guys will just learn a lesson. Then one day the world will break down, burn up, and we'll give this another go. No, God gave up the glory of heaven to come down into our broken world to solve the greatest need, the greatest brokenness we have, which is our relationship with him. And he made us whole in relationship with him and he made us whole he made us whole and he said listen i'm going to write a new ending to this story this story will end with you in the place where everything is as it should be this story will end with you with me and me making all things new i'll write a new ending for you and so when we experience the consequences of our collective sin and the broken world we live in, it should make us mourn over our sin and rejoice over the God who didn't leave us in that condition. Our response should always be, thank you, Jesus, that it won't always be like this. I had a moment this week where I was just overwhelmed by that thought, and I thought, man, I... I am sometimes so tired of living in a world with cancer and Ebola and religious war and all of these things, orphans, abuse. And I just hunger so much to live in a world where it's not like that anymore. And in those moments, the right response, instead of depression, is simply, thank you, God, it won't always be like this. It won't always be like this. I've read the ending, and it's really good.
God's word, get this, this is so important. God's word never promises that nothing bad will ever happen to us. He never made that promise. So we have no right to say to God, but you said, he says, no, I didn't. I never said that. But God's word does promise that the Lord will pull good out of every bad situation. Even as we experience the consequences of our fallen world, God and his redeeming power will do something good in a tragedy. He won't spare us from experiencing the tragedy because we live in a fallen world. But he will do some good in it. He will come in as the healer and do something good. In John 16, this is on your outlines, Jesus said so plainly, these things I have spoken to you that in me you may have peace. Get that, that in me you may have peace. And then he contrasts that. He says, in the world. So he says, in me you'll have peace. But then he says, let me tell you what you'll have in the world. In the world you will have tribulation. You'll have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus says plainly, in me you'll have peace, in the world you'll have trouble. When does life begin to fall apart? When we expect that we will have peace in the world. Jesus says that's never going to happen until he comes back and becomes the one in charge. Romans 8.28, here's the promise that he will redeem even the most negative situations. He says, and we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God. All things, all things, even the negative things, God will pull good out of it. God may not be causing the tragedy, the accident, the heart attack, but it certainly doesn't take him by surprise. This is where the sovereignty of God's plan becomes truly mind-blowing. His sovereign plan laid out before the earth ever existed factors in every single free will decision you, I, and every other person who's ever lived and ever will live has made and will make. God's plan factors in all that, and he says, yes, even with all those variables, I'll still find a way to do good in your most hopeless situation. I'll still find a way because it's not taking me by surprise. I've already laid out a way that I can do some good in that situation. My wife Charlene has been through thyroid cancer, and I'll never forget the phone call I got from her. You never forget the call when your wife calls you and says, I have cancer. You never forget that call the thoughts just flood through your mind faster than you can grab a hold of them, the what-ifs. You just can't control where your brain is going. And we look back on that, and I can't tell you why she got cancer. I can't tell you. Uh, we, we don't have the story of, well, she runs the world's biggest ministry for cancer survivors now. It's, it's not the story. She didn't have a sin issue in her life. I mean, she had me in her life, but I don't think God would, would, would do that to her because of me. But I can tell you that in that situation, we saw the hand of God in a miraculous way. He grew our faith, he grew our trust, and he did good in that. But as I reflect back on that, the only reason I can find for her cancer is simply that we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. That was it. There is sickness in the world. There's disease in the world, and it's got sometimes nothing to do with the actions of the person who is suffering. It has everything to do with the fact that there's sickness in the world because there's sin on our part. So write this down. Everything negative we experience should remind us that we are fallen beings in need of God's redemption. Everything negative we experience should remind us that we are fallen beings 
in need of God's redemption. When we experience sickness and death and every bit of pain that the world has, that's all a screaming reminder to us we need God. We need God. This is what we did. This is what we made. We need his redemptive power in our lives. We need it desperately. So can prayer make a difference when the reason for the trial is the fallenness of the earth? I would suggest the answer is sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes you don't have the chance to pray. The tragedy hits too quickly. But please understand this. We as believers are not exempt from the consequences of living in a fallen world. We are not exempt. If we were, being a Christian would be an obvious decision for every single person in the world. Have you noticed those Christians? They never owe taxes. They never get sick. They never get fat. It's amazing. This is why even if you're a believer, if you're a husband, you need to have life insurance. It's it's not a faith issue. It's understanding you live in a fallen world and you could be walking with Jesus doing everything right and die in a tragic accident tomorrow. You need to understand you and I are not exempt from the fact that we live in a fallen world. But sometimes, sometimes God intervenes. Sometimes he interrupts the tragedy and he heals sickness. Sometimes he stops that destructive process of sin in the world. A miracle may be possible. It may be possible if it's natural consequences of living in a fallen world. It's worth praying. The third possible explanation is that the trial, the circumstance you're praying about experiencing involves natural consequences of our decisions. Natural consequences of our decisions. Sowing and reaping, the Bible calls it. Sowing and reaping is most notably encapsulated in what's known as the golden rule. In Matthew, it says this, Jesus said, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Jesus was saying, all the Old Testament laws as it relates to how you interact with other people can be summed up like this. Proactively treat other people the way that you would like to be treated. That's it, Jesus said. The idea of sowing and reaping is that there are natural consequences for our actions. Natural consequences. So many of us believe in divine healing. But most of us hopefully understand that we can't just ignore our health for 30 years and then claim demonic oppression when we have high blood pressure. Say, I know what's going on. I'm under attack. I'm under attack, brother. My blood pressure is high. Do you think it could have anything to do with the fact that you've completely ignored your health for the past 30 years? No, I know what's really going on here. It's just a natural consequence. (laughs) You're not under supernatural attack. Many of us have walked through, or are still walking through, the pain of realizing that we have to live with the natural consequences of our decisions long after we repent for the bad ones. Isn't that a painful lesson when you realize you can come to the Lord, you can repent, He can heal you, forgive you, free you from guilt, but the consequences of those decisions you made still exist. They don't disappear. If they did, it would be great. 
because then the altar would be filled every Sunday with people repenting for what they ate that week. And they would walk out of here thin and in shape because God would remove the natural consequence. And then I could tell who the really godly are among all of you because it'd be all the ones who have a six pack. And I could look at some of you and say, you haven't been praying. What? How do you know? How do you know? But we understand that's not how it works. The heart changes. The soul changes. But we're still left with the consequences of our earlier decisions. And what I found is that that is one of the great tests of whether or not you and I have really repented. When we are bitter that there are still consequences to our sin even after we've repented, we're not really owning our sin. We're saying we don't believe there should be a consequence. To be able to repent, you have to own what you did. You have to own your sin, and that means manning up and dealing with the consequences of it. If it means apologizing to someone, if it means apologizing to someone till the day you die, if it means making restitution, you, you have to do that. And that's part of the repentance process is owning the consequences of your sin, even after you've repented for it. Write this down. Even as believers, we are not exempt from the practical principle of sowing and reaping. Even as believers, we are not exempt from the practical principle of sowing and reaping. Some of us are complaining to God about circumstances in our lives. And all that's going on is we're simply reaping what we've sown. I, I've seen people complain to God that they have no friends, but they're not friendly. Nothing deep is going on. This is just straight up sowing and reaping. I've seen people complain that they've been single for too long. What are you doing to meet people? I'm praying. You might need to do more. <laughs> you, you might need to uh, take some proactive steps to meet people. So sometimes we need to stop and ask the question, am I just reaping what I've sown? And then God wouldn't really be a good father if he stepped in and removed all of those consequences because it wouldn't change what you sow in your life. Because there would be no consequence to it. If you have kids and you're a good parent, you won't let your kid be a jerk to other people. Because you know, I don't want them to think they can sow those seeds and have quality relationships or find favor with people in life. The father is the same way. He looks at us and he says, sometimes I would be a bad father if I removed these consequences from you because you and I sometimes need those consequences as the reminder that it was a really bad idea to do things our way instead of God's way. So instead of becoming bitter, what we should be saying is right. I wish I'd started doing things your way a lot sooner. Instead of becoming bitter to God, we should have that view. So can prayer make a difference? in the situation where you're experiencing the natural consequences of your own decisions? Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes a person really has changed so much. I really think this is how this works. This is just my speculation. Sometimes a person has changed so much, they really understand that they're reaping what they've sown, and God says, you get it. You don't need the reminder anymore, and God is gracious and removes that. Sometimes, even though we might not like to believe this about ourselves, if the consequence, the reminder was removed, 
we would go right back to doing things our way in areas of our lives. And we sometimes need the reminder constantly, hey, remember that time that I completely ignored the will of God and it created this consequence that I will experience for the rest of my life. Let me never do that again. And God says that is the best thing for you and I sometimes. It's painful, but sometimes it's the best thing because it saves us from repeating the same disastrous mistakes again and again. Better to live sometimes with the consequences of one bad decision than the consequences of many. And sometimes that's what the goodness of God looks like. The final possible explanation. There's no way to make this not look like a freaky fill-in. So I'll just say for what it is. The fourth possible explanation is supernatural demonic attack. Supernatural demonic attack. It really is a possible explanation. The Bible says that the enemy, Satan, comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. He is proactive about trying to bring destruction and death to your life and to my life. He is proactive about it. That is his agenda for you and I. The Apostle Paul said this succinctly in Ephesians 6, one of the definitive passages in the Bible about the nature of spiritual warfare. He said to us, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Those three simple verses tell us that we are in a battle against spiritual forces that have our destruction as their chief goal. And they also tell us it's possible for us to stand and resist the schemes of the enemy. Can prayer make a difference when the trial is being caused by supernatural spiritual attack? Absolutely. Absolutely. We see in the Acts of the Apostles just the name of Jesus causing the presence of demons to flee. And the same is true for us. If that is what's going on, if that's at the root of the issue you're facing or praying about, prayer will make all the difference. So we have these four categories, these four causes of the situations that lead us to pray for God's divine intervention. Just to recap them, the explanations are one, God is doing something. Two, it's a natural consequence of living in a fallen earth. Third, it's a natural consequence of our decisions. Fourth, it's supernatural demonic attack. So why do we pray for miracles? Why do we pray for miracles? This is the big point. This is the fill-in on your outline. We pray in faith because most of the time, we don't know whether a miracle is or is not possible. We pray in faith because most of the time we simply don't know when a miracle is or is not possible. We don't know. You might know what category your situation falls into right now, but you probably don't. You don't know. The miraculous might be possible, it might not be possible. But if the miraculous is possible, what do we want to be found doing? I don't know about you, but if the miraculous is possible, I want to be found praying and believing in faith for that miracle. 
can write that down. If the miraculous is possible, I want to be found praying and believing in faith for that miracle. Just as we talked about last week, if Jesus comes to my life just as he went to his hometown of Nazareth, I want him to find faith in me so that I am not the one stopping him doing that miracle in my life. If the miracle is not possible and we are found praying and believing in faith for something that's impossible, write this down, we still gain something immeasurably invaluable. We still gain peace. You cannot, you cannot sincerely and consistently go to God about an issue and not end up in the place of peace. You may not have it answered, but you'll have what the Bible calls the peace that passes understanding, not a peace that can even be quantified verbally sometimes, but a peace that says it's well with my soul. I'm not saying all is well. I'm saying it's well with my soul. I'm at peace. I'm at rest, even though I don't understand. So here's the reality. If you don't pray, because you're thinking, well, well maybe there's no point. If you don't pray, you will spend the rest of your life wondering what the Lord might have done if you had prayed in faith because you will realize that you didn't know if a miracle was possible or not. You didn't know. So my encouragement to you, my exhortation to you is pray and stand in faith. Don't start coming up with reasons not to before you even start. Pray and stand in faith. If a miracle is possible, you will be doing your part. You will be ready for your visitation. If a miracle is not possible, you will have peace. If you pray for someone in faith that they'll live and they die, you'll have the peace of knowing, here's what I know. I'm walking with God. I'm praying in faith. I'm standing on his word and my prayer didn't get answered. That means God is doing something. This is for my good. Or this is just living in a fallen world. But I know he heard me. I know he heard me. And I can rest with knowing those things. God is doing something. Or I need this to continue in my life so that I stay on track with the Lord. Or this is just a fallen world. And thank God it won't always be like this. There is no downside to praying in faith. There are massive downsides to failing to pray and believe in faith. Most of us have no idea what our situation falls into. We don't know which category it falls into. We don't know why it's happening. But I pray that we would have faith to pray and believe in the goodness of God and to believe that it is worth it to take it to him, to believe that he's in control, that he hears you and I, and he's still good. He is unfailingly, unwaveringly good. Let me pray for you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And the first thing I always want to do is just give an opportunity to anybody who might be here today. And if you're honest, you would say, I've, I've never given my life to Jesus. I've never made the decision to be led by him. Maybe you're in the place today where, where the excuse that you're using is God just doesn't seem to hear me. He doesn't seem to care about my life. And maybe you've blamed God for negative things that are in your life, but today you're understanding everything that is negative in my life 
ultimately comes back to my own decisions or the fact that I'm a human being, part of a human race that rejected God. And maybe for the first time you're understanding the goodness of God in not leaving you and I in that situation, but instead choosing to intervene and say, I have come to make you whole in the deepest part of you. And I've come to begin a healing work in you that will be completed one day in my presence where everything will be as it should. If for the very first time today, you're ready to say, Jesus, I want to follow you. I want to give the leadership, the control of my life to you. Then there's a box on the back of your connection card that you can mark. Do that. Come up and see me after the service. Don't leave without letting us give you a couple of books that are going to help you out, help you get to know God more. For the rest of us, I, I know your mind's probably already there. I just want to ask that, that you would think of that situation that you're praying about, that breakthrough you're praying for. And maybe the Holy Spirit's doing a couple of things. Maybe He's giving you discernment right now to understand what's going on in that situation. Maybe He's giving you insight into yourself. But I want to pray that God would call you to pray or call you to rest. So let me pray for you. Father, I pray right now for every single one of us, for all of those situations that we're praying for, all those breakthroughs we need that we long to see, I pray right now, Holy Spirit, that for every person in the room, you would speak clearly and you would speak a word saying, pray, stand in faith, continue to believe, pray without ceasing, do not lose hope. Or you would speak a clear word to simply rest. To rest in the knowledge that you are God, you are good, you are faithful, you are kind. Would you stir every heart to continue praying in faith or to simply rest in faith? And Father, where we have absolutely no idea, may we be found full of faith in you doing our part, ready if it's your will to come and visit our Nazareth. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin. Thank you for not leaving us broken. Thank you for writing a different ending to all of this. Thank you for the day when we stand around you as you say, behold, I am making all things new. Thank you that we will be there and we will see it with our own eyes. And we will live it, we will breathe it, we will experience it. God, we can't wait. And until then, may our lives not be filled with despair over the state of the world, but rather overwhelming gratitude of the ending that you have written for the world, for us. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness, Lord. Keep talking to the Lord. Pour your heart out to him. Ask him any questions you have. He can take it 